BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Book One of the History of Britain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Copeland. The History of Britain by John Milton. Book One. The History of Britain. That part especially now called England. From the first traditional beginning, continued to the Norman Conquest, collected out of the ancientest and best authors thereof, published from a copy corrected by the author himself, first published in the year 1670, the first book. The beginning of nations, those accepted of whom sacred books have spoken, is to this day unknown nor only the beginning but the deeds also of many succeeding ages yea periods of ages are either wholly unknown or obscured and blemished with fables whether it were that the use of letters came in long after or were it the violence of barbarous inundations or they themselves at certain revolutions of time fatally decaying and degenerating into slope and ignorance whereby the monuments of more ancient civility have been some destroyed some lost perhaps disesteem and contempt of the public affairs then present as not worth recording might partly be in cause certainly oft-times we see that wise men and of best ability have forborne to write the acts of their own days while they beheld with a just loathing and disdain not only how unworthy how perverse how corrupt but often how ignoble how petty how below all history the persons and their actions were who either by fortune or some rude election had attained as a sore judgment and ignominy upon the land to have the chief sway in managing the commonwealth but that any law or superstition of our philosophers the druids forbade the britons to write accounts of their own memorable deeds i know not why any person should out of caesar's commentaries allege he indeed saith that the doctrine they thought not lawful to commit to letters but in most matters else both private and public among which well may history be reckoned they used the greek tongue and that the british druids who taught those in gaul should have been ignorant of any language that was known and used by their disciples or that when they were so frequently employed in writing other things 
and were so inquisitive into the highest subjects they would for want of recording events continue to be ever children in the knowledge of times and ages is not likely but whatever might be the reason of it this we find that of british affairs from the first peopling of the island to the coming of julius caesar nothing certain either by tradition history or ancient fame hath hitherto been left us that which we have of oldest seeming hath by the greater part of judicious antiquaries been long rejected as being only a modern fable nevertheless there being others besides the first supposed author and these too men not unread nor unlearned in antiquity who admit that for a proved story which the former explode for fiction and seeing that oft-times relations heretofore accounted fabulous have been afterwards found to contain in them many footsteps and relics of something true as what we read in poets of the flood and giants was little believed till undoubted witnesses taught us that all of it was not famed i have therefore determined to bestow the telling over even of these reputed tales be it for nothing else but in favour of our english poets and rhetoricians who by their art will know how to use them judiciously i might also produce examples as deodorus among the greeks livy and others among the latins and polydore and virunius who are accounted among our own writers but i intend not with controversies and quotations to delay or interrupt the smooth course of the history much less to argue and debate long who were the first inhabitants of this island and with what probabilities and what authorities each opinion hath been upheld but shall endeavour to do that which hitherto hath been needed most that is with plain and lightsome brevity to relate well and in good order things worth the noting so as they may best instruct and benefit those who read them which imploring divine assistance that it may redound to his glory and the good of the british nation i now begin that the whole earth was inhabited before the flood and to the utmost point of habitable ground from those effectual words of god in the creation may be more than conjectured hence that this island also had her dwellers her affairs and perhaps her written histories even in that old world those many hundred years before the flood with much reason we may infer after the flood and the dispersing of nations as they journeyed leisurely from the east gomer the eldest son of japhet and his offspring as by authorities arguments and affinity of diverse names is generally believed were the first that peopled all these western and northern climes but those of our own writers who thought they had done nothing unless with all circumstances they tell us when and who they were who first set foot upon this island presume to name out of fabulous and counterfeit authors a certain samothis or dis a fourth or sixth son of japhet whom they make about two hundred years after the flood to have planted with colonies first the continent of celtica or gaul and next this island thence to have named it samothia to have reigned here and after him lineally four kings magus saron druis and bardas but the forged berosus whom only they have to cite nowhere mentions that either he 
or any of those whom they bring, did ever pass into Britain, or send their people hither, so that this outlandish figment may easily excuse our not allowing it the room here so much as of a British fable. That which follows, perhaps as wide from truth, though seeming less impertinent, is that these Samothians, under the reign of Bardus, were subdued by Albion, a giant, son of Neptune, who called the island after his own name, and ruled it forty-four years, till at length, passing over into Gaul, in aid of his brother Lestrigan, against whom Hercules was hasting out of Spain into Italy, he was there slain in fight, and Bergion also his brother. Sure enough we are that Britain hath been anciently termed Albion, both by the Greeks and Romans, and Mela, the geographer, makes mention of a stony shore in Languedoc, where, by report, such a battle was fought. The rest, as his giving name to the isle, or even landing here, depends altogether upon late surmises. But too absurd and too unconscionably gross is that fond invention that wafted hither the fifty daughters of a strange Diocletian king of Syria, brought in doubtless by some illiterate pretender to something mistaken in the common poetical story of Danaeus, king of Argos, while his vanity, not pleased with the obscure beginning which truest antiquity affords the nation, laboured to contrive us a pedigree, as he thought, more noble. These daughters, after having by the appointment of their father Danaeus murdered on the night of their marriage all their husbands, except Lincius, whom his wife's loyalty saved, were by Lincius, at the suit of his wife, their sister, not put to death, but turned out to sea in a ship unmanned, of which whole sex they had incurred the hate, and, as the tale goes, they were driven on this island, where the inhabitants, who were none but devils, as some write, or, as others, a lawless crew left here by Albion, without head or governor, both entertained them and had issue by them a second breed of giants, who tyrannized the isle till Brutus came. The eldest of these dames in their legend they called Albina, and from thence, for which cause the whole scene was framed, will have the name Albion derived. Incredible it may seem that so sluggish a conceit should prove so ancient as to be authorized by the elder Ninius, who is reputed to have lived above a thousand years ago. This, however, I find not in him. But he relates that Histian, sprung of Japhet, had four sons, Francus, Romanus, Alemanus, and Brito, of whom the Britons were the descendants which is as true, I believe, as that those other nations whose names are resembled came of the other three, if these dreams give not just occasion to call in doubt the book itself, which bears that title. Hitherto the things themselves have given us a warrantable dispatch to run them soon over. But now a Brutus and his line with the whole progeny of kings to the entrance of Julius Caesar, we cannot so easily be discharged. Descents of ancestry long continued, laws and exploits not plainly seeming to be borrowed or devised, which on the common belief have wrought no small impression, being defended by many, 
denied utterly by few. For what though Brutus and the whole Trojan pretense were yielded up, seeing they who first devised to bring us from some noble ancestor were content at first with Brutus the first consul of Rome after the expulsion of Tarquinius Superbus, till better invention, although not willing to forego the name of Brutus, taught them to remove it higher, into a more fabulous age, and by the same remove, lighting on the Trojan tales in affectation to make the Britain of one original with the Roman, pitched there. Yet that of those old and inborn names of successive kings of this island, never any should have been real persons, or have done in their lives at least some part of what so long hath been related of them, cannot be absolutely concluded without too great a degree of incredulity. For these, and those causes above mentioned, that which hath received approbation from so many, I have chosen not to omit. Certain or uncertain, be that upon the credit of those whom I must follow, so far as it keeps aloof from impossible and absurd, and is attested by ancient writers from books more ancient, I refuse not to relate it as being the due and proper subject of story. The principal author of these disputed facts is well known to be Geoffrey of Monmouth. What he was, and whence his authority, who in his age or before him have delivered the same matter, and such like general discourses, will better stand in a treatise by themselves. All of them agree in this, that Brutus was the son of Silvius, he of Ascanius, whose father was Aeneas, a Trojan prince, who at the burning of that city, with his son Ascanius and a collected number of his countrymen that escaped from that destruction, took refuge on board a small fleet of ships, and abandoned their native country in search of another settlement, and after long wandering on the sea arrived in Italy, where at length, by the assistance of Latinus, king of Latium, who had given him his daughter Lavinia in marriage, he prevailed against his enemies, and at length succeeded Latinus in that kingdom, and left it to his son Ascanius, whose son Silvius, though Roman historians deny Silvius to be son of Ascanius, had secretly married a niece of Lavinia without the consent or knowledge of Ascanius. But some time after this marriage, the wife of Silvius becoming pregnant, the matter became known to Ascanius, and he then commanded his magicians to inquire by their art of what sex the offspring now conceived by the maid would prove at its birth to be. To which inquiry the magicians made answer, that it was such a child as should be the cause of the death of both its parents, and further, that after he should, for so doing, have been banished from his country, he should in a far country obtain the highest honour. And this prediction failed not to be accomplished, for its mother died in childbed, and the child, who was a boy and named Brutus, when he was fifteen years of age, attending his father to the chase, with an arrow unfortunately killed him. In consequence of this unhappy event, this young man was banished by his kindred from his native country, and retired into Greece, in that part of it which had formerly been subject to Peleus, the father of the celebrated warrior Achilles, but was then governed by a king named Pandrasus, and there took up his abode, where he met with a great number of persons who, like himself, were descended from Trojan ancestors. 
for after the taking of troy by the grecian army pyrrhus the son of achilles who was present at that great event in revenge for his father's death who had been slain there a little before took prisoner helenus one of king priam's sons together with other trojans of distinction and carried them and their families away with him to greece in a state of servitude from whom there was descended a numerous posterity when young brutus took refuge among them and amongst these descendants from the same common ancestors with himself the young man soon distinguished himself so much by his valour and activity and capacity for military undertakings that he became an object of the respect and admiration of the kings and great captains of the age above all the youth of that country whereby the trojans not only begin to hope but secretly to move him that he would lead them the way to liberty they allege their numbers and the promised help of Asaracus, a noble Greekish youth, who was by the mother's side a Trojan, and whom for that cause his brother went about to dispossess of certain castles bequeathed to him by his father. Brutus, considering both the forces offered him and the strength of those holds or castles, not unwillingly consents. First, therefore, having fortified those castles, he, with Asaracus and the whole multitude, betake them to the woods and hills, as the safest place from whence to expostulate. And in the name of all he sends to Pandrasus this message, that the Trojans, holding it to be acting in a manner unworthy of their ancestors for them to continue in a state of servitude in a foreign kingdom, had retreated to the woods, choosing rather a savage life than a slavish. If that displeased him, they desire that then, with his leave, they might depart to some other soil as this may pass with good allowance that the trojans might be many in these parts for helenus was by pyrrhus made king of the caonians and the sons of pyrrhus by andromache hector's wife could not but be powerful through all epirus so much the more it may be doubted how these trojans could be thus in bondage where they had friends and countrymen so potent but to examine these things with diligence were but to confute the fables of britain with the fables of greece or italy for of this age what we have to say as well concerning most other countries as this island is equally liable to doubt be how it will pandrasus not expecting so bold a message from the sons of captives gathers an army and marching toward the woods brutus who had notice of his approach nigh to a town called sparatinum i know not what town but certainly of no Greek name, overnight planting himself there with good part of his men, suddenly sets upon him, and with slaughter of the Greeks pursues him to the passage of a river, which mine author names Acalon, meaning perhaps Acalois or Acheron, where at the ford he overlays them afresh. This victory obtained, and a sufficient strength left in Sparatinum, Brutus, with Antigonus, the king's brother, and his friend, Anaclitus, whom he had taken in the fight, returns to the residue of his friends in the thick woods, while Pandrasus, with all speed recollecting his scattered troops, besieges the town. Brutus, to relieve his men besieged, who earnestly called him, distrusting the sufficiency of his force, bethinks himself of this policy. He calls to him Anaclitus, and threatening instant death else, both to him and his friend Antigonus, enjoins him 
that he should go at the second hour of night to the Creekish Legra, and tell the guards he had brought Antigonus by stealth out of prison to a certain woody vale, unable through the weight of his fetters to move him further, entreating them to come speedily and fetch him in. Anaclitus, to save both himself and his friend Antigonus, swears this, and, at a fit hour, sets on alone toward the camp, is met, examined, and at last unquestionably known. To whom great profession of fidelity first made, he frames his tale, as had been taught him, and they now, fully assured, with a credulous rashness leaving their stations, fared accordingly by the ambush that there awaited them. Forthwith, Brutus, dividing his men into three parts, leads on in silence to the camp, commanding first each part at a several place to enter and forbear execution, till he, with his squadron, possessed of the king's tent, gave signal to them by trumpet. The sound whereof is no sooner heard, but huge havoc begins upon the sleeping and unguarded enemy, whom the besieged, also now sallying forth, on the other side assailed. Brutus the while had special care to seize and secure the king's person, whose life, he being still within his custody, he knew was the surest pledge to obtain what he should demand. Day appearing, he enters the town, there distributes the king's treasury, and, leaving the place better fortified, returns with the king his prisoner to the woods. Straight the ancient and grave men he summons to council, to consider what they should now demand of the king. After long debate, Mempricius, one of the gravest, utterly dissuading them from thought of longer stay in Greece, unless they meant to be deluded with a subtle peace and the awaited revenge of those whose friends they had slain, advises them to demand first the king's eldest daughter, Inogen, in marriage to their leader, Brutus, with a rich dowry, next shipping, money, and fit provision for them all to depart the land. This resolution pleasing best, the king, now brought in and placed in a high seat, is briefly told that on these conditions granted he might be free. Not granted, he must prepare to die. Pressed with the fear of death, the king readily yields, especially to bestow his daughter, on whom he confessed so noble and so valiant, offers them also the third part of his kingdom, if they like to stay, if not, to be their hostage himself, till he had made good his word. The marriage therefore solemnized, and shipping from all parts got together, the Trojans in a fleet, no less written than three hundred four-and-twenty sail, betake them to the wide sea, where with a prosperous course two days and a night bring them on a certain island long before dispeopled and left waste by sea-rovers, the name whereof was then Neogitia, now unknown. They who were sent out to discover came at length to a ruined city, where was a temple and image of Diana that gave oracles. But not meeting, first or last, with any creatures save wild beasts, they returned with this notice to their ships, wishing their general would inquire of that oracle what voyage to pursue. Consultation had. Brutus, taking with him Gerion as diviner and twelve of the ancientest, with wonted ceremonies before the inward shrine of the goddess, in verse, as it seems the manner was, utters his request, Diwa potens, nemoren, etc. Goddess of shades and huntress, who at will walkst on the rolling sphere and through the deep, on thy third reign the earth 
look now, and tell what land, what seat of rest thou bidst me seek, what certain seat where I may worship thee for a, with temples vowed and virgin choirs. To whom, sleeping before the altar, Diana in a vision that night thus answered, Brute, sub ocasum solis, etc. Brutus, far to the west, in the ocean wide, beyond the realm of Gaul, a land there lies. Sea girt it lies where giants dwelt of old. Now void, it fits thy people. Thither bend thy course. There shalt thou find a lasting seat. There to thy sons another Troy shall rise, and kings be born of thee, whose dreaded might shall awe the world and conquer nations bold. These verses were originally Greek, and were put into Latin, saith Verunius, by Gildas, a British poet, whom he supposes to have lived under the Roman emperor Claudius, which, if granted true, adds much to the antiquity of this fable, and indeed the Latin verses are much better than for the age of Geoffrey ap Arthur, unless perhaps Joseph of Exeter, who was the only smooth poet of those times, befriended him. In this answer... Diana overshot her oracle, thus ending, Ipsis totius terrae subditis orbis erit, that to the race of brute, kings of this island, the whole earth shall be subject. But Brutus, guided now as he thought by divine conduct, speeds him towards the west, and after some encounters on the Afric side, arrives at a place on the Tyran Sea where he happens to find the race of those Trojans who with Antenor came into Italy, and Quirinius, a man much famed, was the chief, though by surer authors it be reported that those Trojans with Antenor were seated on the other side of Italy, on the Adriatic, not on the Tyrian shore. But these, joining company, and past the Herculean pillars, at the mouth of Ligeris, in Aquitania, cast anchor, where, after some discovery made of the place, Quirinius, hunting nigh the shore with his men, is by messengers of the king Gopharius Pictus met, and questioned about his errand there. Who, not answering to their mind, Imbertus, one of them, lets fly an arrow at Quirinius, which he avoiding slays him, and the Pictavian himself, hereupon levying his whole force, is overthrown by Brutus and Quirinius, the latter of whom, with the battle-axe which he was wont to manage against the Tyran giants, is said to have done marvels. But Gopharius, having drawn to his aid the whole country of Gaul, at that time governed by twelve kings, puts his fortune to a second trial, wherein the Trojans, overborne by multitude, are driven back and besieged in their own camp, which by good foresight was strongly situate. Whence Brutus, unexpectedly issuing out, and Quirinius, in the meanwhile, whose device it was, assaulting them behind from a wood, where he had conveyed his men the night before, the Trojans are again victors, but with the loss of Turon, a valiant nephew of Brutus, whose ashes left in that place gave name to the city of Tur, built there by the Trojans. Brutus, finding now his powers much lessened, and thinking this yet not the place foretold him, leaves Aquitaine, and with an easy course arriving at Totnes in Devonshire, quickly perceives here to be the promised end to his labours. The island, not yet called Britain, but Albion, was in a manner desert and inhospitable, kept only by a remnant of giants, whose excessive force and tyranny had consumed the rest of the people. These giants Brutus destroys, 
but to his people divides the land, which with some reference to his own name he thenceforth calls Britain. To Corinius, Cornwall, as he now call it, fell by lot. The rather by him liked, for the hugest giants in rocks and caves were said to lurk still there, which kind of monsters to deal with was his old exercise. And here, with leave bespoken to recite a grand fable, though dignified by our best poets, while Brutus on a certain festival day solemnly kept on that shore where he first landed, was with the people in great jollity and mirth, a crew of these savages breaking in upon them began on the sudden another sort of game than at such a meeting was expected. But at length, by many hands overcome, Goemagog, the hugest, in height twelve cubits, is reserved alive, that with him Corinius, who desired nothing more, might try his strength, whom in a wrestle the giant catching aloft with a terrible hug broke three of his ribs. Nevertheless, Corinius, enraged, heaving him up by main force and on his shoulders bearing him to the next high rock, threw him headlong all shattered into the sea and left his name on the cliff, called ever since Languemagog, which is to say the giant's leap. After this, Brutus in a chosen place builds Troia Nova, changed in time to Trinovantum, now London, and began to enact laws, Heli being then high priest in Judea and having governed the whole isle twenty-four years, died and was buried in his new Troy. His three sons, Locrine, Albinact, and Camber, divide the land by consent. Locrine has the middle part, Loegria. Camber possessed Cambria, or Wales. Albinact, Albania, now Scotland. But he, in the end, by Humber, king of the Huns, who with the fleet invaded that land, was slain in fight, and his people drove back into Loegria. Lucrine and his brother go out against Humber, who, now marching onward, was by them defeated, and in a river drowned, which to this day retains his name. Among the spoils of his camp and navy were found certain young maids, and Estralus, above the rest passing fair, the daughter of a king in Germany, from whence Humber, as he went wasting the sea-coast, had led her captive, whom Lucrine though before contracted to the daughter of Corinius, resolves to marry. But being forced and threatened by Corinius, whose authority and power he feared, he yields to marry Gwendolen, his daughter, but in secret loves the other, and oft-times retiring as to some private sacrifice through vaults and passages made underground, and seven years thus enjoying her, had by her a daughter equally fair, whose name was Sabra. But when once his fear was off by the death of Corinius, not content with secret enjoyment, divorcing Gwendolen, he makes Estrildus now his queen. Gwendolen, all in a rage, departs into Cornwall, where Madame, the son she had by Locrine, was hitherto brought up by Corinius, his grandfather, and gathering an army of her father's friends and subjects, gives battle to her husband by the river Stour wherein Lucrine, shot with an arrow, ends his life. But not so ends the fury of Gwendolen, for Estrildus and her daughter Sapra she throws into a river, and, to leave a monument of revenge, proclaims that the stream be thenceforth called after the damsel's name, which, by length of time, is changed now to Sabrina, or Severn. 
Fifteen years she governs in behalf of her son, then, resigning to him at age, retires to her father's dominion. This, saith my author, was in the days of Samuel. Madden hath the praise to have well and peacefully ruled the space of forty years, leaving behind him two sons, Mempricius and Malin. Mempricius had first to do with the ambition of his brother, aspiring to share with him in the kingdom, whom, therefore, at a meeting to compose matters, with a treachery which his cause needed not, he slew. Nor was he better in the sole possession thereof, so ill could he endure a partner, for he afterwards killed his nobles, and those especially next to succeed him, till, at last, being given over to unnatural lust, in the twentieth year of his reign, hunting in a forest, he was devoured by wolves. His son Ebranc, a man of mighty strength and stature, reigned forty years. He first, after Brutus, invaded Gaul and laid it waste, and returning rich and prosperous, built Caribranc, now York in Albania, and Alclud, Mount Agnid, or the Castle of Maidens, now Edinburgh. He had twenty sons and thirty daughters by twenty wives. His daughters he sent to Silvius Alba into Italy who bestowed them on his peers of the Trojan line. His sons, under the leading of Asaracus, their brother, won them lands and seigneuries in Germany, which country has been thought by some persons to have been thence called Germania, or the land of brothers, the word Germanus in the Latin language being often used for a brother. But this derivation of the word Germany as the name of the country, now so called, seems to have been too hastily adopted as the time of these conquests of Ebronc and his sons of Germany seems to have been prior to the use of the word Germanus in the Latin tongue in the sense of the word brother, or even to the existence of the Latin language itself, such as we now have it, in Plautus and Terence, and all posterior authors in it. Some writers, who have described the country of Henault as Jacobus Bergamas and Lysabius, are cited to affirm that Ebronc in his war there was by Brunchildus, lord of Henault, put to the worst. Brutus, therefore, surnamed Greenshield, succeeding, to repair his father's losses, as the same Lysabius reports, fought a second battle in Henault with Brunchildus at the mouth of Scaldus, and encamped on the river Hania, of which our Spencer also thus sings. Let Scaldus tell, and let tell Hania, and let the marsh of Esthambruges tell what colour were their waters that same day, and all the moor twixt Elversham and Dell, with blood of Henelois which therein fell. How oft that day did sad Brunchildus see the green shield died in dolorous vermeil, etc. But Henault and Brunchild and Greenshield seem newer names than for a story pretended thus ancient. Him succeeded Leo, a maintainer of peace and equity, but slackened in his latter end, whence arose some civil discord. He built in the north, Caerleo, and in the days of Solomon. Rudhudebras, or Hudebras, appeasing the commotions which his father could not, founded Caercaint, or Canterbury, Caerguent, or Winchester, and Mount Palladour, now Septonia, or Shaftesbury but this by others is contradicted. Bledud, his son, built Kerberus, or Bath, 
and those medicinal waters he dedicated to Minerva, in whose temple there he kept fire continually burning. He was a man of great invention, and taught necromancy, till having made him wings to fly, he fell down upon the temple of Apollo in Trinovant, and so died after twenty years' reign. Hitherto, from father to son, the direct line had run on, but Lear, who next reigned, had only three daughters and no male issue, governed laudably, and built Kerlear, now Leicester, on the bank of Sora. But at last, failing through age, he determines to bestow his daughters, and so among them to divide his kingdom. Yet first to try which of them loved him best, a trial that might have made him, had he known as wisely how to try, as he seemed to know how much the trying behooved him, he resolves a simple resolution to ask them solemnly, in order, and which of them should profess largest, her to believe. Goneril, the eldest, apprehending too well her father's weakness, makes answer invoking heaven that she loved him above her soul. Therefore, quoth the old man, overjoyed, since thou so honorest my declining age, to thee and the husband whom thou shalt choose, I give the third part of my realm. So fair a speeding, for a few words soon uttered, was to Regan the second ample instruction what to say. She, on the same demands, bears no protesting, and the gods must witness that otherwise to express her thoughts she knew not, but that she loved him above all creatures, and so receives an equal reward of her sister. But Cordelia, the youngest, though hitherto she had been the best beloved, and had now before her eyes the rich and present hire of a little easy soothing, and the danger also, and the loss likely to betide plain dealing, yet moves not from the solid purpose of a sincere and virtuous answer. Father, saith she, my love towards you is as my duty bids. What should a father seek? What can a child promise more? They who pretend beyond this flatter. And the old man, sorry to hear this, and wishing her to recall those words, persisted asking, with a loyal sadness at her father's infirmity, but something on the sudden, harsh, and glancing rather at her sister's than speaking her own mind. Two ways only, said she, I have to answer what you require me. The former, your command, is I should recant except then this other which is left me. Look how much you have. So much is your value, and so much I love you. Then hear thou, quoth Lear, now all in passion, what thy ingratitude hath gained thee. Because thou hast not reverenced thy aged father equal to thy sisters, part in my kingdom, or what else is mine, reckon to have none and without delay gives in marriage his other daughters, Goneril to Maglaunus, Duke of Balbania, Regan to Henaeus, Duke of Cornwall. With them, in present, half his kingdom, the rest to follow at his death. In the meanwhile, fame was not sparing to divulge the wisdom and other graces of Cordelia, insomuch that Agonippus, a great king in Gaul, however he came by his Greek name, not found in any register of French kings, seeks her to wife, and nothing altered at the loss of her dowry 
receives her gladly in such manner as she was sent him after this king lear more and more drooping with years became an easy prey to his daughters and their husbands who now by daily encroachment had seized the whole kingdom into their hands and the old king is put to sojourn with his eldest daughter attended only by threescore knights but they in a short while grudged at as too numerous and disorderly for continual guests are reduced to thirty not brooking that affront the old king betakes him to his second daughter but there also discord soon arising between the servants of different masters in one family five only are suffered to attend him then back again he returns to the other hoping that she his eldest could not but have more pity on his gray hairs but she now refuses to admit him unless he be content with one only of his followers at last the remembrance of his youngest cordelia comes to his thoughts and now acknowledging how true her words had been though with little hope of a kind reception from one whom he had so much injured and that he might be able to pay her the last recompense she can have from him by making to her his confession of her wise forewarning that so perhaps his misery the proof and experiment of her wisdom might something soften her he takes his journey into france now might be seen a difference between the silent or downright spoken affection of some children to their parents and the talkative obsequiousness of others while the hope of inheritance overacts them and on the tongue's end enlarges their duty cordelia out of mere love without the suspicion of expected reward at the message only of her father in distress pours forth true filial tears and not enduring either that her own or any other eye should see him in such forlorn condition as his messenger declared discreetly appoints one of her trusted servants first to convey him privately toward some good sea-town there to array him bathe him cherish him and furnish him with such attendance and state as beseemed his dignity that then as from his first landing he might send word of his arrival to her husband agonippus which done with all mature and requisite contrivance cordelia with the king her husband and all the barony of his realm who then first had news of his passing sea go out to meet him and after all honourable and joyful entertainment agonippus as to his wife's father and his royal guest surrenders to him during his abode there the power and disposal of his whole dominion permitting his wife cordelia to go with an army and set her father upon his throne wherein her piety so prospered as that she vanquished her impious sisters with those dukes and lear again as set the story three years obtained the crown to whom dying cordelia with all regal solemnities gave burial in the town of leicester and then as right heir succeeding him and her husband agonippus being dead ruled the land five years in peace until morganus and cunodegius her two sisters sons not bearing that a kingdom should be governed by a woman in the unseasonablest time to raise that quarrel against a woman so worthy make war against her depose her and imprison her of which being impatient and now long unexercised to suffer she there as is related killed herself the victors between them part the land 
but Marginus, the eldest sister's son, who held by agreement from the north side of Humber to Cathnus, incited by those about him to invade all as his own right, wars on Cunedegius, who soon met him, overcame, and overtook him in a town of Wales, where he left his life, and ever since his name, to the place. Cunedegius was now sole king, and governed with much praise many years, about the time when Rome was built. Him succeeded Rivallo, his son, wise also, and fortunate, save what they tell us of three days raining blood, and swarms of stinging flies, whereof men died. In order then, Gergustius, Jago, or Lago, his nephew, Sicilius, Kinmarcus, then Gorbodigo, whom others name Gorbodego, and Gorbodium, who had two sons, Ferex and Porex. They, in the old age of their father, falling to contend who should succeed, Porex, attempting by treachery his brother's life, drives him into France, and in his return, though aided with the force of that country, defeats and slays him. But by his mother Videna, who less loved him, is himself, with the assistance of her women, soon after slain in his bed, with whom ended, as is thought, the line of Brutus. Whereupon the whole land with civil broils was rent into five kingdoms, long time waging war each on other, and some say fifty years. At length, Dunwallo Molmutius, the son of Cloton, king of Cornwall, one of the foresaid five, excelling in valour and goodliness of person, after his father's decease found means to reduce again the whole island into a monarchy, subduing the rest at opportunities. First, Imner, king of Luegria, whom he slew, then Rudaucus of Cambria, Staterius of Albania, confederate together. In which fight, Dunwallo is reported, while the victory hung doubtful, to have used this art. He takes with him six hundred stout men, bids them put on the armor of their slain enemies, and so unexpectedly approaching the squadron where those two kings had placed themselves in fight, from that part which they thought securest, assaults and dispatches them. Then, displaying his own ensigns, which before he had concealed, and sending notice to the other part of his army what was done, adds to them new courage, and gains a final victory. This Dunwallow was the first in Britain that wore a crown of gold, and therefore by some reputed the first king. He established the Momutine Laws, famous among the English to this day, written long after in Latin by Gildas and in Saxon by King Alfred, so saith Geoffrey. But Gildas denies to have known aught of the Britons before Caesar, much less knew Alfred. These laws, whoever made them, bestowed on temples the privilege of sanctuary, to cities also, and the ways thither leading. Yea, to ploughs granted a kind of like refuge, and made such riddance of thieves and robbers that all passages were safe. Forty years he governed alone, and was buried nigh to the Temple of Concord, which he, to the memory of peace restored, had built in Trinovant. His two sons, Bellinus and Brennus, contending about the crown, by decision of friends came at length to an accord. Brennus, to have the north of Humber, Bellinus, the sovereignty of all. 
but the younger not so contented that he as they whispered to him whose valour had so oft repelled the invasion of culfus the maurine duke should now be subject to his brother upon new design sails into norway enters into a league with elsing the king of norway and proposes to marry his daughter which bellinus perceiving in his absence dispossesses him of all the north brennus with a fleet of norwegians makes towards britain but being encountered by withlac the danish king who laying claim to his bride pursued him on the sea his haste was retarded and he bereft of his spouse who from the fight by a sudden tempest was with the danish king driven on the coast of northumberland and brought to bellinus brennus nevertheless finding means to recollect his navy lands in albania and gives battle to his brother in the wood calitarium but losing the day escapes with one single ship into gaul meanwhile the dane upon his own offer to become tributary to belinus being sent home with his new prize the daughter of the king of norway belinus again turns his thoughts to the administering of justice and the perfecting of his father's law and to explain what highways might enjoy the foresaid privileges he caused to be drawn out and paved four main roads to the utmost length and breadth of the island and to others a fourth which are since attributed to the romans brennus on the other side soliciting to his aid the kings of gaul happens at last on Saginus, duke of the allobriges where his worth and comeliness of person won him the duke's daughter and heir in whose right he shortly after by the death of Saginus, succeeding to his dukedom and by obtained leave passing with a great host through the length of gaul gets footing once again in britain now was bellinus unprepared and now the armies of the two brothers being ready to meet each other in battle conovena the mother of them both all in a fright throws herself between them and calling earnestly to brennus her son whose absence had so long deprived her of his sight after embracements and tears assails him with such a motherly power and the mention of things so dear and reverend as irresistibly wrung from him all his enmity against bellinus then our hands joined reconciliation made firm and counsel held to turn their united preparations on foreign parts thence that by these two brothers all gallia was overrun the story tells and what they did in italy and at rome if these be they and not gauls who took that city the roman authors can best relate so far from home i undertake not for the monmouth chronicle which here against the stream of history carries up and down these two brethren now into germany then again to rome pursuing gabius and porsena to unheard of consuls thus much is more generally believed that both this brennus and another famous captain britomarus whom the epitonist florus and others mention were not gauls but britons the name of the first in that tongue signifying a king and of the other a great britain however bellinus after a while returning home the rest of his days ruled in peace wealth and honour above all his predecessors building some cities of which one was Caros upon Osca, since Carigian, beautifying others as Trenovant, with a gate, a haven, and a tower on the Thames, retaining yet his name, on the top whereof his ashes are said to have been laid up in a golden urn. 
After him, Burgundius Barbarus was king, mild and just, but yet, inheriting his father's courage, he subdued the Dacian, or Dane, who refused to pay the tribute covenanted to Bellinus for his enlargement. In his return, finding about the Orkneys thirty ships of Spain or Biscay fraught with men and women for a plantation, whose captain also, Bartholinus, wrongfully banished as he pleaded, besought him that some part of his territory might be assigned them to dwell in, he sent with them certain of his own men to Ireland, which then lay unpeopled, and gave them that island to hold of him as in homage. He was buried in Carlegion, a city which he had walled about. Gwytheline, his son, is also remembered as a just and good prince, and his wife, Marcia, to have excelled so much in wisdom as to venture upon a new institution of laws, which King Alfred translating called Marchan League, but more truly thereby is meant the Mercian law, not translated by Alfred, but digested and incorporated with the West Saxon. In the minority of her son, she had the rule, and then, as may be supposed, brought forth these laws. Not herself, for laws are masculine births, but by the advice of her sagest counsellors, and therein she might do virtuously, since it befell her to supply the knowledge of her son. Else nothing is more arrived from the law of God and nature than that a woman should give laws to men. Her son Sicilius, coming to years, received the rule. Then, in order, Chimerus, then Danius, or Alanius, his brother, then Morindus, his son by Tanquistella, a concubine, who is recorded a man of excessive strength, valiant, liberal, and fair of aspect, but immensely cruel, not sparing in his anger enemy or friend, if any weapon were in his hand. A certain king of the Maureens, or Picards, invaded Northumberland, whose army this king, though not wanting sufficient numbers, chiefly by his own prowess overcame but dishonoured his victory by the cruel usage of his prisoners, whom his own hands, or others in his presence, put all to several deaths. Well fitted to such a bestial cruelty was his end, for hearing of a huge monster that from the Irish sea infested the coast, and in the pride of his strength foolishly attempting to set manly valour against a brute vastness, when his weapons were all in vain, by that horrible mouth he was catched up and devoured. Gobonian, the eldest of his five sons, than whom a juster man lived not in his age, was a great builder of temples, and gave to all persons what was their due, to his gods devout worship, to men of desert honour and preferment, to the commons encouragement in their labours and trades, defence and protection from injuries and oppressions, so that the land flourished above her neighbours. Violence and wrong seldom was heard of. His death was a general loss. He was buried in Trinovant. Archigallo, the second brother, followed not his example, but depressed the ancient nobility, and by peeling the wealthier sort stuffed his treasury and took the right way to be deposed, which afterwards befell him. Elidur, the next brother, surnamed the Pious, was set up in his place, a mind so noble and so moderate as almost as incredible to have been ever found. For, having held the sceptre five years, hunting one day in the forest of Calater, 
he chanced to meet his deposed brother, wandering in a mean condition, who had been long in vain beyond the seas importuning foreign aids to his restorement, and was now in a poor habit with only ten followers, privately returned to find subsistence among his secret friends. At the unexpected sight of him, Elidur, himself also then but thinly accompanied, runs to him with open arms, and after many dear and sincere welcomings conveys him to the city Alclud. There hides him in his own bedchamber. Afterwards, feigning himself sick, he summons all his peers, as about greatest affairs. Where, admitting them one by one, as if his weakness endured not the disturbance of more at once, he causes them, willing or unwilling, once more to swear allegiance to Archigallo, whom, after reconciliation made on all sides, he leads to York, and from his own head places the crown on the head of his brother. With thenceforth, vice itself dissolving in him and forgetting her firmest hold with the admiration of a deed so heroic, became a true converted man, ruled worthily ten years, died, and was buried in Caerlear. Thus was a brother saved by a brother, to whom the love of a crown, the thing that so often dazzles and vitiates mortal men, and for which thousands of persons of nearest blood have destroyed each other, was, in respect of brotherly dearness, a contemptible thing. Elidur now, in his own behalf, reassumes the government, and did as was worthy such a man to do. When Providence, that so great a virtue might want no sort of trial to make it more illustrious, stirs up Vigenius and Peridur, his youngest brethren, against him, who had deserved so nobly of that relation of brotherhood as least of all men to have deserved to be injured by a brother. Yet him they defeat, him they imprison in the tower of Trinovant, and divide his kingdom, the north to Peridur, the south to Vigenius. After whose death, Peridur, obtaining all, so much the better used his power by how much the worse he got it, so that Elidur now is hardly missed. But yet, in all right, owing to his elder the due place whereof he had deprived him, fate would that he should die first. And Elidur, after many years' imprisonment, is now the third time seated on the throne which at last he enjoyed long in peace, finishing the interrupted course of his mild and just reign as full of virtuous deeds as days to his end. After these five sons of Merindus succeeded also their sons in order, Regin of Gorbonian, Morganus of Archigallo, both good kings, but Enionus, his brother, taking other courses, was after six years deposed. Then Edwallo, taught by a near example, governed soberly. Then Runo, then Geruntius, he of Peridur, this last, the son of Elidur, from whose loins, for that likely is the durable and surviving race that springs of just progenitors, issued a long descent of kings, whose names only for many successions without other memory stand thus registered. Catellus, Coelus, Porrex, Charon, and his three sons, Fulgentius, Eldatus, and Adrages his son Orianus, Eliud, Eludacus, Cotenus, Griguntius, Marianus, Bladuno, Capis, Huinus, Sicilius, twenty kings, 
in a continued row that either did nothing or lived in ages that wrote nothing at least a foul pretermission in the author of this whether story or fable himself weary of seams of his own tedious tale but to make amends for this silence Phlegabridus, next succeeding, is recorded to have excelled all before him in the art of music. Opportunely, had he but left us one song of the actions of his twenty predecessors. Yet after him nine more succeeded in name. His brother, Archimilus, Eldol, Redian, Ridercius, Simulius, Penicel, Peer, Comporus, but Quigwellius, with the addition of modest, wise, and just. His son, Heli, reigned forty years and had three sons, Lud, Cassibelan, and Ninius. This Heli seems to be the same whom Ninius in his fragment calls Minocan, for him he writes to be the father of Cassibelan. Lud was he who enlarged and walled about Trinovant. There kept his court, made it the prime city, and called it from his own name Carelud, or Lud's town, now London, which, as is alleged, out of Gildas, became matter of great dissension betwixt him and his brother Nidius, who took it heinously that the name of Troy, their ancient country, should be abolished for any new one. Lud was hardy and bold in war, in peace a jolly feaster. He conquered many islands of the sea, saith Huntingdon, and was buried by the gate which from thence we call Ludgate. His two sons, Androgeus and Tenuantius, were left to the tuition of Cassibelan, whose bounty and high demeanour so wrought with the common people as got him easily the kingdom transferred upon himself. He nevertheless, continuing to favour and support his nephews, confers freely upon Androgeus London with Kent, upon Tenuantius Cornwall, reserving a superiority over both of them, and all the other princes to himself, till the Romans for a while circumscribed his power. Thus far, though leaning only on the credit of Geoffrey Monmouth and his asserters, I yet, for the specified causes, have thought it not beneath my purpose to relate what I found, whereto I neither oblige the belief of other persons, nor over-hastily subscribe mine own nor have I stood with others computing or collating years and chronologies, lest I should be vainly curious about the times and circumstances of things whereof the substance is so much in doubt. By this time, like one who had set out on his way by night, and travelled through a region of smooth or idle dreams, our history now arrives on the confines where daylight and truth meet us with a clear dawn representing to our view, though at a far distance, true colours and shapes. For albeit Caesar, whose authority we are now first to follow, wanted not some critics who taxed him of misrepresenting facts in his commentaries, and even in his history of the civil war against Pompey, and therefore much more may we suppose that he has taken the same liberties in treating of the British affairs, in which from the little skill of the British in writing, he could not apprehend that he should be contradicted, yet now in such a variety of good authors as have treated of the next following part of our history, we hardly can fail from one hand or other to be sufficiently informed of the events that happened in it, as far as can well be expected concerning things that passed so long ago. But this will better be referred to a second discourse.
End of Book One Recording by Thomas Copeland Book Two of The History of Britain by John Milton This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland The History of Britain, a second book I am now to write of what befell the Britons from fifty and three years before the birth of our Saviour, when first the Romans came in, till the decay and ceasing of that empire, a story of much truth, and for the first hundred years and somewhat more, collected without much labour, so many and so prudent were the writers, which those two, the civilest and the wisest of European nations, both Italy and Greece, afforded to the actions of that puissant city. For worthy deeds are not often destitute of worthy relators, as by a certain fate great acts and great eloquence have most commonly gone hand in hand, equaling and honouring each other in the same ages. It is true that in obscurest times, by shallow and unskilful writers, the indistinct noise of many battles and devastations of many kingdoms, overrun and lost, hath come to our ears. For what wonder, if in all ages ambition and the love of rapine hath stirred up greedy and violent men to bold attempts in wasting and ruinous wars, which to posterity have left the work of wild beasts and destroyers rather than the deeds and monuments of men and conquerors. But he whose just and true valour uses the necessity of war and dominion not to destroy but to prevent destruction, to bring in liberty against tyrants, law and civility among barbarous nations, knowing that when he conquers all things else, he cannot conquer time or detraction. Wisely conscious of this his want, as well as of his worth not to be forgotten or concealed, honours and hath recourse to the aid of eloquence, his friendliest and best supply, by whose immortal record his noble deeds, which else were transitory, become fixed and durable against the force of years and generations. Note. In this description of the durability of a high reputation acquired by great and virtuous actions, in this and the following line, which is almost poetical, there is a considerable resemblance to the following passage of Virgil in the beginning of the third book of the Georgics, to wit, Tentanda via est qua me quoquem possim tolera humo, retorpa, virum volitare per ora. I too must strive to raise my name sublime upon the wings of fame, and victor over time and death, live in my applauding country's breath. Return to text. He fails not to continue through all posterity over envy, death, and time also victorious. Therefore, when the esteem of science and liberal study waxes low in the commonwealth, we may presume that also there all civil virtue and worthy action is grown as low to a decline. And then eloquence, as it were consorted in the same destiny with the decrease and fall of virtue, corrupts also and fades, at least resigns her office of relating public actions to illiterate and frivolous historians, such as the persons themselves both deserve and are best pleased with, whilst they want either the understanding to choose better, or the innocence to dare invite the examining and searching style of an intelligent and faithful writer to the survey of their unsound exploits, which are better befriended by obscurity than by fame. As for these, the only authors we have of British matters, while the power of Rome reached hither, for Gildas affirms that of the Roman times no British writer was in his days extant, or if any were, either burnt by enemies, or transported with such as fled the Pictish and Saxon invasions. 
These, therefore, only Roman authors there be, who in the English tongue have laid together as much, and perhaps more, than was requisite to a history of Britain, so that, were it not for leaving an unsightly gap so near the beginning, I should have judged this labour, wherein so little seems to be required above transcription, almost superfluous. Notwithstanding, since I must go through with it, if aught by diligence may be added or omitted, or by other disposing may be more explained or more expressed, I shall assay. Julius Caesar, of whom and of the Roman free state more than what appertains to the history of Britain is not here to be discoursed, having subdued most part of Gallia or Gaul, which by a potent faction at Rome he had obtained of the Senate as his province for many years, stirred up with a desire of adding still more glory to his name and the whole Roman Empire to his ambition, or, as some say, with a far meaner and ignobler motive, to wit the desire of acquiring a quantity of British pearls, whose bigness he delighted to balance in his hand, determines, and that upon no unjust pretended occasion, to try his force in the conquest also of Britain. For he understood that the Britons, in most of his Gallican wars, had sent supplies against him, had received fugitives of the Bolabaki, his enemies, and were called over to aid the cities of Armorica, which had the year before conspired all in a new rebellion. Therefore Caesar, though the summer was well-nigh ending, and the season unagreeable to transport a war, yet judged that it would be of great advantage only to get an entrance into the isle, and a knowledge of the men, the places, the ports, and the access to it, which then, it seems, were even to the Gauls our neighbours almost unknown. For except merchants and traders, it is not oft, saith he, that any persons used to travel thither, and to those that do, besides the sea-coast and the ports next to Gallia, no thing else is known. But here I must complain, as Pollio did, that I do not meet with the accuracy and fullness of description, or the fidelity of memory that usually appears in Caesar's writings. For if it was true, as the people of Reims told him, that Divitiacus, who had not long before been a powerful king of the people of Soissons in Gaul, had also had Britain under his command, and that many colonies of the northern part of Gaul, called Belgium, had gone over to Britain and made settlements there, to which they had given their own names, and which had contributed to the peopling of many provinces in that island, and if also the Britons had so frequently given the Gauls aid in all their wars, and lastly, if the learning of the Druids, which was honoured so much amongst the Gauls, was first taught them out of Britain, and those persons in Gaul who were most desirous of attaining that learning were usually sent to Britain to learn it, it does not appear how Britain at that time should be so utterly unknown in Gaul, or only known to merchants, and even to them be so little known, that when they were called together from all parts, none could be found to inform caesar of what bigness the island was what nations its inhabitants consisted of how great or numerous what use of war they had what laws or even so much as what commodious harbours for vessels somewhat greater than the common size as caesar in this passage informs us of all which things as it were then first to make discovery he sends Gaius Volusinus in a long galley with command to return as soon as this could be effected. He, in the meantime, with his whole power, draws nigh to the Maureen coast, whence the shortest passage was into Britain. Hither his navy, which he had used against the Armoricans, 
and what else of shipping can be provided he draws together this being known in britain ambassadors are sent from many of the states there who promise hostages and obedience to the roman empire them after audience given caesar as largely promising and exhorting them to continue in that mind sends home and with them comius of arras whom he had made king of that country and now secretly employed to gain a roman party among the britons in as many cities as he found inclinable and to tell them that he himself was speeding thither volusinus with what discovery of the island he could make from aboard his ship not daring to venture on the shore within five days returns to caesar who soon after with two legions ordinarily amounting of romans and their allies to about twenty five thousand foot and four thousand five hundred horse the foot and eighty ships of burden the horse and eighteen besides what galleys were appointed for his chief commanders sets off about the third watch of night with a good gale to sea leaving behind him sulpicius rufus to make good the port with a sufficient strength but the horse whose appointed shipping lay wind-bound eight miles upward in another haven had much trouble to embark caesar now within sight of britain beholds on every hill multitudes of armed men ready to forbid his landing and cicero writes to his friend atticus that the accesses of the island were wonderfully fortified with strong works or moles here from the fourth to the ninth hour of day he awaits at anchor the coming up of his whole fleet meanwhile with his legates and tribunes consulting and giving order to fit all things for what might happen in such a various and floating water-fight as was to be expected this place which was a narrow bay close environed with hills appearing no way commodious he removes to a plain and open shore eight miles distant commonly supposed to be about deal in kent which when the britons perceived their horse and chariots as then they used to do in fight scouring before their main power speeding after some thick upon the shore others not tarrying to be assailed ride in among the waves to encounter and assault the romans even under their ships with such a bold and free hardihood that caesar himself between confessing and excusing that his soldiers were to come down from their ships to stand in water heavy armed and to fight at once denies not but that the terror of such new and resolute opposition made them forget their wanted valour to succour which he commands his galleys a sight unusual to the britons and more apt for motion drawn from the bigger vessels to row against the open side of the enemy and thence with slings engines and darts to beat them back but neither yet though amazed at the strangeness of those new sea castles bearing up so near and so swiftly as almost to overwhelm them and the hurtling of oars and the battering of fierce engines against their bodies barely exposed did the britons give much ground or the romans gain till he who bore the eagle of the tenth legion yet in the galleys first beseeching his gods said thus aloud leap down soldiers unless you mean to betray your ensign i for my part will perform what i owe to the commonwealth and my general this uttered overboard he leaps and with his eagle fiercely advanced runs upon the enemy the rest heartening one another not to admit the dishonour of so nigh losing their chief standard follow him resolutely now was fought eagerly on both sides ours who well knew their own advantages and expertly used them now in the shallows now on the sand still as the romans went trooping to their ensigns received them dispatched them and with the help of their horse put them everywhere to great disorder but caesar 
causing all his boats and shallops to be filled with soldiers, commanded them to ply up and down continually with relief where they saw need, whereby at length all the foot now disembarked and got together in some order on firm ground, with a more steady charge put the Britons to flight. But wanting all their horse, whom the winds yet withheld from sailing, they were not able to make pursuit. In this confused fight, Saiva, a Roman soldier, having pressed too far among the Britons, and being beset round, after incredible valour shown, single against a multitude, swam back safe to his general, and in the place that rung with his praises, earnestly besought pardon for his rash adventure against discipline, which modest confessing, after no bad event, for such a deed wherein valour and ingenuity so much outweighed transgression, easily made amends and preferred him to be a centurion. Caesar is also brought in by Julian as attributing to himself the honour, if it were at all an honour to that person which he sustained, of being the first that left his ship and took land. But this were to make Caesar less understand what became him than Saiva. The Britons, finding themselves mastered in fight, forthwith send ambassadors to treat of peace promising to give hostages and to be at command. With them, Comius of Arras also returned, whom hitherto, since his first coming from Caesar, they had detained in prison as a spy. The blame whereof they lay on the common people, for whose violence, and their own imprudence, they crave pardon. Caesar, complaining that they had first sought peace, and then without cause had begun war, yet is content to pardon them, and commands hostages, where apart they bring in straight, Others, far up in the country to be sent for, they promise in a few days. Meanwhile, the people being disbanded and sent home, many princes and chief men from all parts of the isle submit themselves and their cities to the disposal of Caesar, who lay then encamped, as is thought, on Barham Down. Thus had the Britons made their peace, when suddenly an accident unlooked for put new counsels into their minds. Four days after the coming of Caesar, those eighteen ships of burden which from the upper haven had taken in all the roman horse borne with a soft wind to the very coast in sight of the roman camp were by a sudden tempest scattered and driven back some to the port from whence they loosed others down into the west country who finding there no safety either to land or to cast anchor chose rather to commit themselves again to the troubled sea and as erosius reports were most of them cast away the same night, it being full moon, the galleys left upon dry land were unaware to the Romans covered with a spring tide, and the greater ships that lay off at anchor, torn and beaten with waves, to the great perplexity of Caesar and his whole army, who now had neither shipping left to convey them back, nor any provision made to stay here, intending to have wintered in Gallia. All this the Britons well perceiving, and by the compass of his camp, which without baggage appeared the smaller, guessing at his numbers, Consult together, and one by one slyly withdrawing from the camp where they were waiting the conclusion of a peace, resolved to stop all provisions, and to draw out the business till winter. Caesar, though ignorant of what they intended, yet from the condition wherein he was, and their other hostages not being sent, suspecting what was likely, begins to provide a pace all that might be against what might happen, lays in corn and with materials fetched from the continent and what was left of those ships which were past help he repairs the rest so that now by the incessant labour of his soldiers all but twelve were again made serviceable while these things were doing 
one of the legions being sent out to forage as was accustomed and no suspicion of war while some of the britons were remaining in the country about others also going and coming freely to the roman quarters they who were in station at the camp gates sent speedily word to caesar that from that part of the country to which the legion went a greater dust than usual was seen to rise caesar guessing the matter commands the cohorts of guard to follow him thither two others to succeed in their stead the rest all to arm and follow they had not marched long when caesar discerns his legions sore overcharged for the britons not doubting but that their enemies on the morrow would be in that place which only they had left unreaped of all their harvest had placed an ambush and while they were dispersed and busiest at their labour set upon them killed some and routed the rest the manner of their fight was from a kind of chariots wherein riding about and throwing darts with the clutter of their horse and of their wheels they oft-times broke the rank of their enemies then retreating among the horse and quitting their chariots they fought on foot the charioteers in the meanwhile somewhat aside from the battle set themselves in such order that their masters at any time oppressed with odds might retire safely thither having performed with one person both the nimble service of a horseman and the steadfast duty of a foot-soldier so much they could with their chariots by use and exercise as riding on the speed down a steep hill to stop suddenly and with a short rein turn swiftly now running on the beam now on the yoke then in the seat with this sort of new skirmishing the romans being now overmatched and terrified caesar with opportune aid appears for then the britons make a stand but he considering that now was not a fit time to offer battle while his men were scarce recovered of so late a fear only keeps his ground and soon after leads back his legions to the camp further action for many days following was hindered on both sides by foul weather in which time the britons dispatching messengers round about learn to how small a number the romans were reduced and from that derive hope that they might gain both glory and booty and free themselves from the fear of the like invasions hereafter by making an example of this roman army if they could but now uncamp their enemies at this intimation multitudes of horse and foot coming down from all parts make towards the romans caesar foreseeing that the britons though beaten and put to flight would easily evade his foot yet with no more than thirty horse which comius had brought over draws out his men to battle puts again the britons to flight pursues them with slaughter and returning burns and lays waste the country all about whereupon ambassadors on the same day being sent from the britons to desire peace caesar as his affairs at present stood for so great a breach of faith only imposes on them double the former number of hostages to be sent after him into gallia and because september was nigh half spent a season not fit to tempt the sea with his weather-beaten fleet the same night with a fair wind he departs towards belgium whither two only of the british cities sent hostages as they promised the rest neglected but at rome when the news came of caesar's acts here whether it were esteemed a conquest or a fair escape a supplication of twenty days is decreed by the senate as either for an exploit done or a discovery made wherein both caesar and the romans gloried not a little though it brought no benefit either to him or to the commonwealth the winter following caesar as his custom was going into italy when as he saw that most of the britons neglected to send their hostages appoints his legates whom he left in belgium to provide what possible shipping they could either build or repair low built they were to be 
as thereby easier both to freight and to hail ashore nor needed they to be higher because the tide so often changing was observed to make the billows less in our sea than those in the mediterranean broader likewise they were made for the better transporting of horses and all other freightage being intended chiefly for that end these in all about six hundred being in readiness with twenty-eight ships of burden and what with adventurers and other hulks above two hundred cotta one of the legates wrote them as athenaeus affirms in all one thousand caesar from port ixius a passage of some thirty miles over leaving behind him lebienus to guard the haven and for other supply at need with five legions though but two thousand horse about sunset hoisting sail with a slack southwest wind at midnight was becalmed and finding when it was light that the whole navy lying on the current had fallen off from the isle which now they could descry on their left hand by the unwearied labour of his soldiers who refused not to tug the oar and kept course with ships under sail he bore up as near as might be to the same place where he had landed the year before where about noon arriving note before the birth of christ fifty-two years returned to text no enemy could be seen for the britons who in great numbers as was afterwards known had been there at sight of so huge a fleet durst not abide caesar forthwith landing his army and encamping to his best advantage some notice being given him by those he took where to find his enemy with the whole power save only ten cohorts and three hundred horse left with quintus atrius for the guard of his ships about the third watch of the same night marches up twelve miles into the country and at length by a river commonly thought to be the stour in kent espies embattled the british forces they with their horses and chariots advancing to the higher banks oppose the romans in their march and begin the fight but being repulsed by the roman cavalry give back into the woods to a place notably made strong both by art and nature which it seems had been a fort or hold of strength raised heretofore by the britons in time of wars among themselves for entrance and access on all sides by the felling of huge trees overthwart one another was quite barred up and within these the britons did their utmost to keep out the enemy but the soldiers of the seventh legion locking all their shields together like a roof close overhead and others raising a mount without much loss of blood took the place and drove them all to forsake the woods pursuit they made not long as being through ways unknown and now evening came on which they more wisely spent in choosing out where to pitch and fortify their camp that night the next morning caesar had but newly sent out his men in three bodies to pursue and the last no further gone than yet in sight when horsemen all in post from quintus atrius bring word to caesar that almost all his ships in a tempest that night had suffered wreck and lay broken upon the shore caesar at this news recalls his legions himself in all haste riding back to the seaside beheld with his eyes the ruinous prospect about forty vessels were sunk and lost and the residue so torn and shaken as not to be new rigged without much labour straight he assembles what number of shipwrights either in his own legions or from beyond the sea could be summoned sends orders to levienus on the belgian side to build more and with a dreadful industry of ten days not respiting the soldiers day or night drew up all his ships and entrenched them round within the circuit of his camp this done and leaving to their defence the same strength as before he returns with his whole forces to the same wood where he had defeated the britons who preventing him with greater powers than before had now repossessed themselves of that place under cassibelan their chief leader whose territory from the states bordering on the sea was divided by the river thames about eighty miles inward 
with him formerly other cities had continual war but now in the common danger they had all made choice of him to be their general here the british horse and charioteers meeting with the roman cavalry fought stoutly and at first being something overmatched they retreat to the near advantage of their woods and hills but being still followed by the romans make head again cut off the forwardest among them and after some pause while caesar who thought the day's work had been done was busied about the entrenching of his camp march out again give fierce assault to the very stations of his guards and sentries and while the main cohorts of two legions that were sent to the alarm stood within a small distance of each other terrified at the newness and boldness of their fight charged back again through the midst without loss of a man of the romans that day was slain quintus liberius durus a tribune and the britons having fought their fill at the very entrance of caesar's camp and sustained the resistance of his whole army entrenched gave over the assault caesar here acknowledges that the roman way both of arming and of fighting was not so well fitted against this kind of enemy for that the foot in heavy armour could not follow their cunning flight and durst not by ancient discipline stir from their ensign and the horse alone disjoined from the legions against a foe that turned suddenly upon them with a mixed encounter both of horse and foot were in equal danger both in following and in retiring besides their fashion was not in great bodies and close order but in small divisions and open distances to make their onset appointing others at certain spaces now to relieve and bring off the weary now to succeed and renew the conflict which argued no small experience and use of arms next day the britons afar off upon the hills begin to show themselves here and there and though less boldly than before to skirmish with the roman horse but at noon caesar having sent out three legions and all his horse with trebonius the legate to seek fodder suddenly on all sides they set upon the foragers and charge up after them to the very legions and their standards the romans with great courage beat them back and in the chase being well seconded by the legions not giving them time either to rally or stand or to descend from their chariots as they were wont slew many from this overthrow the britons that dwelt farther off betook them home and came no more after that time with so great a power against caesar whereof advertised he marches onward to the frontiers of Cassibola, note camden return to text which on this side were bounded by the thames not passable except in one place and that difficult about coestakes near oatlands as is conjectured hither coming he descries on the other side great forces of the enemy placed in good array the bank set all with sharp stakes others in the bottom covered with water whereof the marks in beda's time were to be seen as he relates this having learned by such as were taken or had run to him he first commands his horse to pass over then his foot who wading up to the neck went on so resolutely and so fast that they on the other side not enduring the violence retreated and fled cassibelan no more now in hope to contend for victory dismissing all but four thousand of those charioteers through woods and intricate ways attends their motion where the romans are to pass drives all before him and with continual sallies upon the horse where they least expected cutting off some and terrifying others compels them so close together as gave them no lead to fetch in prey or booty without ill success whereupon caesar strictly commanding all not to part from the legions had nothing left him in his way but empty fields and houses which he spoiled and burnt meanwhile the trinobantes a state or kingdom and perhaps the greatest then among the britons 
less favouring Cassibelan, sent ambassadors, and yield to Caesar upon this reason. Emanuentius had been their king. Him Cassibelan had slain, and purposed the like to Mandubracius his son, whom Orotius calls Androgorius, Beda, Androgius. But the youth, escaping by flight into Gallia, put himself under the protection of Caesar. These entreat that Mandubracius may still be defended and sent home to succeed in his father's right. Caesar sends him demands forty hostages and provision for his army, which they immediately bring in and have their confines protected from the soldiers. By their example, the Senemagni, Segonciaki, Ancalites, Riboki, Cassi, so I write them for the modern names of it guessed, on like terms make their peace. By them he learns that the town of Cassibelan, supposed to be Verulam, was not far distant, fenced about with woods and marshes, well stuffed with men and much cattle. For towns then in Britain were only woody places, ditched round and with a mud wall encompassed against the inroads of enemies. Thither goes Caesar with his legions, and, though a place of great strength both by art and nature, assaults it in two places. The Britons, after some defence, fled out all at another end of the town. In the flight many were taken, many slain, and great store of cattle found there. Cassibelan, notwithstanding all these losses, yet does not desert himself, nor was yet his authority so much impaired, but that in Kent, though it was in a manner possessed by the enemy, his messengers and commands find obedience enough to raise all the people. By his direction, Syngeterix, Carvilius, Taximagulus, and Segonax, four kings reigning in those countries which lie upon the sea, lead them on to assault that camp wherein the Romans had entrenched their shipping. But they whom Caesar left there, issuing out, slew many, and took prisoners in Jeterix, a noted leader, without loss of their own. Cassibelan, after so many defeats, moved especially by the revolt of the cities from him, their inconstancy and falsehood one to another, uses the mediation of Comius of Arras to send ambassadors to him about treaty of yielding. Caesar, who had determined to winter in the continent, by reason that Gallia was unsettled and not much of the summer now behind, commands him only hostages, and what yearly tribute the island should pay to Rome, forbids him to molest the Trinovantes or Mandubracius, and, with his hostages and a great number of captives, he puts to sea, having at twice embarked his whole army. At his return to Rome, as from a glorious enterprise, he offers to Venus, the patroness of his family, a corslet of British pearls. Albeit other ancient writers have spoken more doubtfully of Caesar's victories here, and have said that in plain terms he fled from hence, for which the common verse in Lucan, with diverse passages here and there in Tacitus, is alleged. Paulus Osorius, who took what he wrote from a history of Suetonius now lost, writes that Caesar in his first journey, entertained with a sharp fight, lost no small number of his foot, and by a tempest nigh all his horse. Dion affirms that once in the second expedition all his foot were routed, Osorius that another time all his horse. The British author, whom I use only then when others are all silent, hath many trivial discourses of Caesar's actions here which are best omitted. Nor have we more of Cassibelan than what the same story tells, how he warred soon after with Androgius about his nephew slain by Evelinus, nephew to the other, which business being at length composed, Cassibelan dies, and was buried in York, 
if the monmouth will fable not but at caesar's coming hither such likeliest were the britons as the writers of those times and their own actions represent them in courage and warlike readiness to take advantage by ambush or sudden onset they were not inferior to the romans nor cassibelan to caesar in weapons arms and the skill of encamping and battling fortifying overmatched their weapons were a short spear and light target a sword also by their side their fight sometimes in chariots fanged at the axle with iron sides their bodies were most part naked only painted with woad in sundry figures to seem terrible as they thought but when pursued by enemies they were not nice of their painting but were used to run into bogs worse than wild irish up to the neck and there to stay many days holding a certain morsel in their mouths no bigger than a bean to suffice hunger but that receipt and the temperance it taught is long since unknown among us their towns and strongholds were spaces of ground fenced about with a ditch and great trees felled over thwart each other their buildings within were thatched houses for themselves and their cattle in peace the upland inhabitants besides hunting tended their flocks and herds but with little skill of country affairs the making of cheese they commonly knew not wool or flax they spun not gardening and planting many of them knew not clothing they had none but what the skins of beasts afforded them and that not always yet gallantry they had painting their own skins with several portraitures of beast bird or flower a vanity which hath not yet left us removed only from the skin to the skirt they hung now with as many coloured ribbons and gewgaws towards the seaside they tilled the ground and lived much after the manner of the gauls their neighbours or first planters their money was brazen pieces or iron rings their best merchandise tin the rest trifles of glass ivory and such like yet gems and pearls they had saith mela in some rivers their ships were made of light timber wickered with osier between and covered over with leather and served not therefore to transport them far and their commodities were fetched away by foreign merchants their dealing saith theodorus was plain and simple without fraud their civil government is as under many princes and states not confederate or consulting in common but mistrustful and oft-times warring one with the other which gave them up one by one an easy conquest to the romans their religion was governed by a sort of priests or magicians called druids from the greek name of an oak which tree they had in great reverence and the mistletoe especially growing thereon pliny writes them skilled in magic no less than those of persia by their abstaining from a hen a hare and a goose from fish also saith dion and their opinion of the souls passing after death into other bodies they may be thought to have studied pythagoras yet philosophers i cannot call them as they were reported to be men factious and ambitious contending sometimes about the archpriesthood not without civil war and slaughter nor did they restrain the people under them from a lewd adulterous and incestuous life ten or twelve men absurdly against nature possessing one woman as their common wife though of nearest kin mother daughter or sister progenitors not to be gloried in but the gospel not long after preached here abolished such impurities and of the romans we have cause not to say much worse than that they beat us into some civility who were likely else to have continued longer in a barbarous and savage manner of life after julius for julius before his death tyrannously had made himself emperor of the roman commonwealth 
and was slain in the senate for so doing he who next obtained the empire octavianus caesar augustus either contemning the island as strabo would have us think whose friendship was not worth the having or enmity worth the fearing or as some say out of a wholesome state maxim to moderate and bound the empire from growing too extensive and unwieldy made no attempt against the britons but the truer cause was partly a civil war among the romans and partly other affairs more urging for about twenty years after all which time the britons had lived at their own disposal augustus in imitation of his uncle julius either intending or seeming to intend an expedition hither was coming to gallia when the news of a revolt in pannonia diverted him from undertaking it note year before the birth of christ twenty five return to text and about seven years after in the same resolution what with the unsettledness of gallia and what with ambassadors from britain which met him there he proceeded not the next year some difference arising between him and the britons about covenants he was again prevented by other new commotions in spain nevertheless some of the british potentates omitted not to seek his friendship by gifts offered in the capital and other obsequious addresses insomuch that the whole island became even in those days well known to the romans too well perhaps for them who from the knowledge of us were so like to prove enemies but as for tribute the britons paid none to augustus except what easy customs were levied on the slight commodities wherewith they traded into gallia after cassibelan tenantius the younger son of lud according to the monmouth story was made king for androgius the elder conceiving himself generally hated for siding with the romans forsook his claim here and followed caesar's fortune this king is recorded just and warlike his son cymbeline or cunobeline succeeding was brought up as is said in the court of augustus and with him held friendly correspondences to the end was a warlike prince his chief seat camelodunum or maldon as by certain of his coins yet to be seen appears tiberius the next emperor adhering always to the advice of augustus and of himself caring less to extend the bounds of his empire sought not the britons and they as little to incite him sent home courteously the soldiers of germanicus that by shipwreck had been cast on the british shore but caligula his successor a wild and dissolute tyrant having passed the alps with intent to rob and spoil those provinces and stirred up by adminius the son of cunobeline who by his father banished with a small number fled thither to him made semblance of marching toward britain but being come to the ocean and there behaving himself madly and ridiculously went back the same way yet sent before him boasting letters to the senate as if all britain had been yielded to him cunobeline being now dead and adminius the eldest of his sons having by his father been banished from his country and by his own practice against it from the crown though by an old coin seeming to have also reigned to godumnus and caractacus the two younger uncertain whether unequal or subordinate in power were advanced into his place but through civil discord barricus what he was further is not known with others of his party flying to rome persuaded claudius the emperor to an invasion claudius now consul for the third time and desirous to do something whence he might gain the honour of a triumph at the persuasion of these fugitives whom the britons demanding he had denied to render and they for that cause had denied further amity with rome makes choice of this island for his province 
and sends before him Aulus Plautius, the praetor, with this command, if the business grew difficult, to give him notice. Plautius, with much ado, persuaded the legions to move out of Gallia, who murmured that now they must be put to make war beyond the world's end, for so they counted Britain, and what welcome Julius the dictator had found there, doubtless they had heard. At last, being prevailed with to obey the commands of their general, and hoisting sail from three several ports, lest their landing should in any one place be resisted, meeting cross-winds they were cast back and disheartened, till in the night a meteor shooting flames from the east, and as they fancied directing their course, they took heart again to try the sea, and without opposition landed. For the Britons, having heard of their unwillingness to come, had been negligent to provide against them and retiring to the woods and boors, intended to frustrate and wear them out with delays, as they had served Caesar before. Plautius, after much trouble to find them out, encountering first with Caractacus, then with Togodumnus, overthrew them, and, receiving into conditions part of the Boduni, who then were subject to the Catuellini, and leaving there a garrison, went on toward a river, where the Britons, not imagining that Plautius, without a bridge, could pass, lay on the further side careless and secure. But he, sending first the Germans, whose custom was, armed as they were, to swim with ease the strongest current, commands them to strike especially at the horses, whereby the chariots, wherein consisted their chief art of fight, became unserviceable. To second them, he sent Vespasian, who in his latter days obtained the empire, and Sabinus his brother, who, unexpectedly assailing those who were least aware, did much execution. Yet not for this were the Britons dismayed, but reuniting the next day, fought with such a courage as made it hard to decide which way hung the victory, till Caius Sidius Geta, at point to have been taken, recovered himself so valiantly as brought the day on his side, for which at Rome he received high honours. After this the Britons drew back toward the mouth of the river Thames, and being acquainted with those places crossed over where the Romans, following them through bogs and dangerous flats, hazarded the loss of all. Yet the Germans, getting over and others by a bridge at some place above, fell on them again with sundry alarms and great slaughter. But in the heat of pursuit, running themselves again into bogs and mires, lost as many of their own. Upon which ill success, and seeing the Britons more enraged at the death of Togodumnus, who in one of these battles had been slain, Plautius, fearing the worst, and glad that he could hold what he held, as was enjoined him, sends to Claudius. He, who waited ready with a huge preparation, as if not safe enough amidst the flower of all his Romans, like a great eastern king with armed elephants, marches through Gallia. So full of peril was this enterprise esteemed, as not without all this equipage and stranger terrors than Roman armies, to meet the native and the naked British valour defending their country. Joined with Plautius, who, encamping on the bank of the Thames, attended him, he passes the river. The Britons, who had the courage, but not the wise conduct of old Cassibelan, laying all stratagem aside, in downright manhood scruple not to affront in open field almost the whole power of the Roman Empire. But overcome and vanquished, part by force, others by treaty, come in and yield. Claudius, therefore, who took Camelodunum, the royal seat of Cunobeline, was often by the army saluted Imperator, a military title which usually they gave their general after any notable exploit, 
but to others not above once in the same war, as if Claudius by these acts had deserved more than the laws of Rome had provided honour to reward. Having therefore disarmed the Britons, but remitted the confiscation of their goods, for which they worshipped him with sacrifice and temple as a god, leaving Plautius to subdue what remained, he returns to Rome, from whence he had been absent only six months, and in Britain but sixteen days, sending the news before him of his victories, though in a small part of the island, by which is manifestly refuted that which Eutropius and Orosius write of his conquering at that time also the Orcades Islands, lying to the north of Scotland, and not conquered by the Romans, for aught found in any good author, till about forty years after, as shall appear. To Claudius the Senate, as for achievements of highest merit, decreed excessive honours, arches, triumphs, annual solemnities, and the surname of Britannicus, both to him and his son. Suetonius writes that Claudius found here no resistance, and that all was done without a stroke. But this seems not probable. The Monmouth writer names these two sons of Cunobeline, Guiderius and Arvirigus, that Guiderius being slain in fight, Arvirigus to conceal it put on his brother's habiliments, and in his person upheld the battle to a victory. The rest, as of Hanno, the Roman captain, Genuisa, the emperor's daughter, and such like stuff, is too palpably untrue to be worth rehearsing in the midst of truth. Plautius, after this, employing his fresh forces to conquer on, and quiet the rebelling countries, found work enough to deserve at his return a kind of triumphant riding into the capital, side by side with the emperor. Vespasian also, under Plautius, had thirty conflicts with the enemy, in one of which, encompassed and in great danger, he was valiantly and piously rescued by his son Titus. Two powerful nations he subdued here, above twenty towns, and the Isle of Wight, for which he received at Rome triumphal ornaments and other great dignities. For that city, in reward of virtue, was ever magnificent, and long after, when true merit was ceased among them, lest anything resembling virtue should want honour, the same rewards were yet allowed to the very shadow and ostentation of merit. Ostorius, in the room of Plautius, vice-praetor, met with turbulent affairs, the Britons not ceasing to vex with inroads all those countries that were yielded to the Romans, and now the more eagerly from their supposing that the new general, being unacquainted with his army, and on the edge of winter, would not hastily oppose them. But he, weighing that first events were most available to breed fear or contempt, resolves to begin by acting with vigour against them, and with such cohorts as were next at hand sets out against them, whom having routed, so close he follows, as one who meant not to be every day molested with the cavils of a slight peace or an emboldened enemy. Lest they should make head again, he disarms those whom he suspects, and to surround them places many garrisons upon the rivers of Antona and Sabrina. But the Icenians, a stout people untouched yet by these wars, as having before sought alliance with the Romans, were the first that brooked not this. By their example, others rise, and in a chosen place, fenced with high banks of earth and narrow lanes to prevent the horse from acting, warily encamp. Ostorius, though yet not strengthened with his legions, causes the auxiliary bands, his troops also alighting, to assault the rampart. They within, though pestered with their own number, stood to it like men resolved, and in a narrow compass did remarkable deeds. 
but overpowered at last and others by their success quieted who till then wavered ostorius next bends his force upon the cangians wasting all the country even to the sea of ireland without foe in his way or them who durst ill handled when the brigantes attempting new matters drew him back to settle first what was unsecure behind him they of whom the chief were punished the rest forgiven soon gave over but the salures no way tractable were not to be repressed without a set war to further this camelodunum was planted with a colony of veteran soldiers to be a firm and ready aid against revolts and a means to teach the natives roman law and civility Coginunus also a british king their fast friend had to the same intent certain cities given him a haughty craft which the romans used to make kings also the servile agents of enslaving others but the silures hardy of themselves relied more on the valour of caractacus whom many doubtful many prosperous successes had made eminent above all that ruled in britain he adding to his courage policy and knowing himself to be of strength inferior in other advantages the better makes the seat of his war among the ordovices a country wherein all the odds were to his own party all the difficulties to his enemy the hills and every access he fortified with heaps of stones and guards of men to come at whom a river of unsafe passage must first be waded the place as camden conjectures had thence the name of Caradoc, on the west edge of shropshire he himself continually went up and down animating his officers and leaders that this was the day this the field either to defend their liberty or to die free calling to mind the names of his glorious ancestors who drove caesar the dictator out of britain and whose valour hitherto had preserved them from bondage and their wives and children from dishonour inflamed with these words they all vow their utmost with such undaunted resolution as amazed the roman general but the soldiers less weighing because less knowing clamoured to be led on against any danger ostorius after wary circumspection bids them pass the river the Britons no sooner had them within reach of their arrows, darts, and stones, but slew and wounded largely of the Romans. They, on the other side, closing their ranks, and overhead closing their targets, threw down the loose rampires of the Britons, and pursued them up the hills, both light and armed legions, till what with galling darts and heavy strokes, the Britons, who wore neither helmet nor cuirass to defend them, were at last overcome. This the Romans thought a famous victory wherein the wife and daughters of caractacus were taken his brothers also reduced to obedience himself escaping to cartismandu a queen of the brigantes against faith given was to the victors delivered bound having held out against the romans nine years saith tacitus but by tour computation seven whereby his name was up through all the adjoining provinces even to italy and rome many desiring to see who he was that could withstand so many years the roman puissance and caesar to extol his own victory extolled the man whom he had vanquished being brought to rome the people as to a solemn spectacle were called together the emperor's guard stood in arms in order came first the king's servants bearing his trophies one in other wars next his brothers wife and daughter last himself the behaviour of others through fear was low and degenerate he only neither in countenance word or action submissive 
standing at the tribunal of Claudius, briefly spake to this purpose. If my mind, Caesar, had been as moderate in the height of fortune as my birth and dignity was eminent, I might have come a friend rather than a captive into this city. Nor couldst thou have disliked him for a confederate, so noble of descent and ruling so many nations. My present estate, to me disgraceful, to thee is glorious. I had riches, horses, arms, and men. No wonder then if I contended not to lose them. But if by fate yours only must be empire, then of necessity ours among the rest must be subjection. If I sooner had been brought to yield, my misfortune had been less notorious, your conquest had been less renowned, and in your severest determining of me, both will be soon forgotten. But if you grant that I shall live, by me will live to you for ever that praise which is so near divine, the clemency of a conqueror. Caesar, moved at such a spectacle of fortune, but especially at the nobleness of his bearing it, gave him pardon, and to all the rest. They all unbound, submissively thank him, and did like reverence to Agrippina, the emperor's wife, who sat by in state, a new and disdained sight to the manly eyes of Romans, a woman sitting publicly in her female pride among ensigns and armed cohorts. To Ostorius a triumph is decreed, and his military services are extolled as being equal to those of former great Roman commanders who had brought the most famous kings to Rome in chains as their prisoners of war. But the same prosperity attended not his later actions here, for the Silures, whether to revenge the loss of Caractacus, or that they saw Ostorius, as if now all were done, to have become less earnest to restrain them, beset the prefect of his camp, who was left there with legionary bands to appoint garrisons, and had not speedy aid come in from the neighboring holds and castles, would have cut them all off, notwithstanding which the prefect with eight centurions and many of their stoutest men were slain. And upon the neck of this, meeting first with Roman foragers, then with other troops hasting to their relief, utterly foiled and broke them also. The story of sending more troops after could hardly stay their flight, till the weighty legions coming on at first poised the battle and at length turned the scale to the Britons, without much loss for by that time it grew night. Then was the war shivered, as it were, into small frays and bickerings, not unlike sometimes to so many robberies in woods at waters as chance or valour, advice or rashness led them on, commanded or without command. That which most exasperated the Silors was the report of certain words cast out by the Emperor that he would root them out to the very name. Therefore, two cohorts more of auxiliaries, who, by the avarice of their leaders, were too securely pillaging, they quite intercepted, and bestowing liberally on the neighboring Britons the spoils and captives whereof they took plenty, drew other countries to join with them. These losses falling so thick upon the Romans, Ostorius, with the thought and anguish thereof, ended his days. The Britons rejoicing, although no battle, that yet adverse war had worn out so great a soldier. Caesar, in his place, ordains Aulus Didius. But ere his coming, though much hastened that the province might not want a governor, the Silures had given an overthrow to Manlius Valens with his legion, which was rumoured on both sides to be greater than was true. 
by the sealors to animate the new general by him in a double respect of the more praise if he quelled them or the more excuse if he failed meantime the sealors forgot not to infest the roman pale with wide excursions till didius marching out kept them somewhat more within bounds nor were they long to seek who after caractacus should lead them for next to him in worth and skill of war venutius a prince of the brigantes merited to be their chief he at first faithful to the romans and by them protected was the husband of cartus mandua queen of the brigantes himself perhaps reigning elsewhere she who had betrayed caractacus and her country to adorn the triumph of claudius thereby grown powerful and gracious with the romans resuming on the hire of her treason deserted her husband and marrying Volocatus, one of his squires confers on him the kingdom also this deed so odious and full of infamy disturbed the whole state venutius with other forces and the help of her own subjects who detested the example of so foul a fact and with all the uncomeliness of their subjection to the monarchy of a woman a piece of manhood not every day to be found among britons though she had got by subtle train his brother with many of his kindred into her hands brought her soon below the confidence of being able to resist longer when imploring the roman aid with much ado and after many a hard encounter she escaped the punishment which was ready to have seized her venutius thus debarred the authority of ruling his own household justly turns his anger against the romans themselves whose magnanimity not one to undertake dishonourable causes had arrogantly intermeddled in his domestic affairs to uphold the rebellion of an adulteress against her husband and the kingdom he retained against their utmost opposition and of war gave them their fill first in a sharp conflict of uncertain event then against the legion of caesius nasica insomuch that didius growing old and managing the war by deputies had work enough to stand on his defence with the gaining now and then of a small castle and nero for in that part of the isle things continued in the same plight to the reign of vespasian was minded but for shame to have withdrawn the roman forces out of britain in other parts whereof about the same time other things befell Verenius, whom nero sent hither to succeed didius dying in his first year saving a few inroads upon the silures left only a great boast behind him that in two years had he lived he would have conquered all but suetonius paulinus who next was sent hither esteemed a soldier equal to the best in that age for two years together went on prosperously both confirming what was got and subduing onward at last overconfident of his present actions and emulating others of whose deeds he heard from abroad he marches up as far as mona the isle of anglesey a populous place for they it seems had both entertained fugitives and given good assistance to the rest that withstood him he makes him boats with flat bottoms fitted to the shallows which he expected in that narrow frith his foot so passed over his horse waded or swam thick upon the shore stood several gross bands of men well weaponed many women like furies running to and fro in dismal habit with their hair loose about their shoulders held torches in their hands the druids those were their priests of whom more in another place with hands lifted up to heaven uttering direful prayers astonished the romans who at so strange a sight stood in amaze though wounded 
but at length, awakened and encouraged by their general not to fear a barbarous and lunatic rout, fall on and beat them down, scorched and rolling in their own fire. Then were they yoked with garrisons, and the places consecrated to their bloody superstitions destroyed. For whom they took in war they held it lawful to sacrifice, and by the entrails of men used divination. While thus Paulinus had his thought still fixed before to go on winning, his back lay broad open to occasion of losing more behind. For the Britons, urged and oppressed with many unsufferable injuries, had all banded themselves to a general revolt. The particular causes are not all written by one author. Tacitus, who lived nearest those times of any to us extent, writes that Prasutagus, king of the Icenians, abounding in wealth, had left Caesar co-heir with his two daughters, thereby hoping to have secured from all wrong both his kingdom and his house, which fell out far otherwise. For, under colour to oversee and take possession of the emperor's new inheritance, his kingdom became a prey to centurions, his house to ravening officers, his wife Boadicea violated with stripes, his daughters with rape, the wealthiest of his subjects, as it were by the will and testament of their king, thrown out of their estates, his kindred made little better than slaves. The new colony also of Camelodunum took house or land from whom they pleased, terming them slaves and vassals, the soldiers complying with the colony out of hope hereafter to use the same license themselves. Moreover, the temple erected to Claudius as a badge of their eternal slavery stood a great eyesore, the priests whereof, under the pretext of what was due to the religious service, wasted and embezzled each man's substance upon themselves. And Catus Decianius, the procurator, endeavoured to bring all their goods within the compass of new confiscation by disavowing the remitment of Claudius. Lastly, Seneca, in his books of philosopher, having drawn the Britons unwillingly to borrow of him vast sums upon fair promises of easy loan, and for repayment to take their own time, on a sudden compels them to pay in all at once with great extortion. Thus provoked by heaviest sufferings, and thus invited by opportunities in the absence of Paulinus, the Icenians, and by their examples, the Trinobantes, and as many else as hated servitude, rise up in arms. Of these ensuing troubles many foregoing signs appeared. The image of victory at Camelodunum fell down of itself with her face turned, as it were, to the Britons. Certain women, in a kind of ecstasy, foretold of calamities to come. In the council house were heard by night barbarous noises, in the theatre hideous howlings, in the creek horrid sights betokening the destruction of that colony. Here too the ocean, seeming of a bloody hue, and human shapes at low ebb left imprinted on the sand, wrought in the Britons new courage, in the Romans unwanted fears. Camelodunum, where the Romans had seated themselves to dwell pleasantly rather than defensively, was not fortified. Against that, therefore, the Britons make their first assault. The soldiers within were not very manly. Decianus, the procurator, could send then but two hundred, and those ill-armed and through the treachery of some among them who secretly favoured the insurrection, they had deferred both to entrench themselves and to send out of the place such of the inhabitants as did not bear arms. Such as did, 
flying to the temple which on the second day was forcibly taken were all put to the sword the temple made a heap and the rest of the town rifled and burnt petilius geraeus coming to his succour is in his way met and overthrown his whole legion cut to pieces he with his horse hardly escaping to the roman camp decianus whose rapine was the cause of all this fled into gallia but suetonius at these tidings not dismayed through the midst of his enemy's country marches to london which though not termed a colony yet was full of roman inhabitants and for the frequency of trade and other commodities a town even then of principal note with purpose to have made there the seat of war but considering the smallness of his numbers and the late rashness of petilius he chooses rather with the loss of one town to save the rest nor was he flexible to any prayers or weeping of them that besought him to tarry there but taking with him such as were willing gave signal to depart they who through weakness of sex or age or love of the place went not along with him perished by the enemy so did verulam a roman free town for the britons omitting forts and castles flew thither first to a richest booty and the hope of pillaging told them on in this massacre about seventy thousand romans and their associates in the places above mentioned of certain lost their lives none might be spared none ransomed but tasted all either a present or a lingering death no cruelty that either outrage or the insolence of success put into their heads was left unacted the roman wives and virgins were hanged up all naked and had their breasts cut off and sewed to their mouths that in the grimness of death they might seem to eat their own flesh while the britons fell to feasting and carousing in the temple of andate their goddess of victory suetonius adding to his legion other old officers and soldiers thereabout which gathered to him were near upon ten thousand and purposing with these not to defer battle had chosen a place narrow and not to be overwinged on his rear a wood being well informed that his enemy were all in front on a plain unapt for ambush the legionaries stood thick in order impaled with light on the horse on either wing the britons in companies and squadrons were everywhere shouting and swarming such a multitude as at other time was never seen assembled no less reckoned than two hundred and thirty thousand so fierce and confident of victory that their wives also came in wagons to sit and behold the sport as they made full account of killing romans a folly doubtless for the serious romans to smile at as a sure token of prospering that day a woman also was their commander-in-chief for Boatusia and her daughters ride about in a chariot telling the tall champions as a great encouragement that with the britons it was usual for women to be their leaders a deal of other fondness they put into her mouth not worth recital how she was lashed how her daughters were handled things worthier silence retirement and a veil than for a woman to repeat as done to her own person or to hear repeated before an host of men the greek historian sets her in a field on a high heap of turves in a loose-bodied gown declaiming a spear in her hand a hair in her bosom which after a long circumlocution she was to let slip among them for luck's sake then praying to Andate the British goddess to talk again fondly as before. And this they do out of a vanity, hoping to embellish and set out their history with the strangeness of our manners, 
not caring in the meanwhile to brand us with the rankest note of barbarism as if in britain women were men and men women end of the first part of chapter two of the history of britain bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in maryland turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code old line 150 then place a five dollar wager on any sport you'll receive 150 dollars in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome and if you think the fun stops there the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store check out daily promotions same game parlays live bets and so much more download the app in maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.